Hello and welcome to Goon Pod, a podcast about that old radio show that your dad used to play in the car on long car journeys, along with his Super Tramp tapes. My name's Tyler Adams, and with it being 70 years since the first Goon show was broadcast, uh, with the help of guests, I want to reacquaint myself with and rediscover the Goon show and attempt to answer that question, what was it all about then? Uh, as I said, I'll have guests, some of whom will already be pretty familiar with the goons and possibly some who aren't. Uh, I, I realise that could be challenging, but I'm, I'm not setting out to make this podcast a, a eulogy to the goons. I, I, I want to revisit them with an open mind uh, and I, I won't be reluctant to criticise or pick holes, but only when I think it's justified. But equally, I want to celebrate it when it's at its best, as well as talking around the shows themselves and the scripts, the performers and anything else relevant will be. Uh, examining the period in which they went out, the cultural climate of Britain at the time, the news events, uh, notable personalities, and anything else we feel sort of adds to the conversation. Um, most importantly, uh, with my guests, I want to know, you know what the goons mean to them, what their history with the show was, and, and how they feel it holds up in, in 21st century Britain. So joining me today is writer and podcaster, Adam Leslie. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Very good. Thank you for uh, joining me on this uh, sort of um, inaugural uh, goon pod. Yeah, you're more than welcome. It's, it's fun to be here. So you and I were in contact, obviously, um, and you you indicated that you had been a big fan of the goons when you were younger. Um, mm. So how did you get into them? It's a slightly roundabout, roundaway story behind it that me and my friend Peter used to write these sub Tolkien adventure stories uh, when we were like 12 13 and we never took it quite that seriously and I remember with Peter we were recording um, a tape of us reading one of this, these little adventure books uh, with silly music in the background and putting on these silly voices and just not go in the way that like pre-teens will tend to do oh look at me I'm really clever kind of thing um and I think when I was playing it back my mum said my mum said you sound like the goon show and I didn't really know what that was and I hadn't heard that before but I don't know if she even meant it as a compliment but I took it as a compliment it's like oh we sound like a professional thing but that name always stuck with me and then a few years later in the library I found a tape of the goon show it's like, oh, it's that, that thing that my mum mentioned. And it's, it's like this revelation of sort of like a reverse supergroup. It's like, it's Spike Milligan, it's Peter Sellers, who both of whom I was really familiar with. It's like, wow, they did a thing together. And there's the guy off Highway as well, which is very strange. <laughs> Harry Seacom off the religious shows from a Sunday. So, yeah, there's a very strange combination of people with this sort of you know, renowned, eccentric... TV personality, writer, and then a big movie star, and then the guy off Highway, all sort of in the 50s doing this radio show together. It's it's similar, to, I guess, to a lot of people in the, uh, maybe of our generation or our age, who in the late 70s, early 80s were, were kids, um, maybe, you know, it flipped their wigs when they found out that Paul McCartney from Wings used to be in a, a band with John Lennon. <laughs> yes, I was thinking exactly that's, that's one of the, the notes I write down, in fact, that it, it's a bit like the Beatles. It's like, oh, it's the guy, it's, it's that guy from Malivkin Tyre. And, you know, it's the, just like starting over in the Imagine guy and the When We Was Fab guy, like they were in a band together. It's mind-blowing. And then Ringo as well, who everyone knows. 
Yeah, because I, um, I I was always really into um, British comedy growing up in uh, New Zealand in the uh, 70s and 80s. I was, I was into all sorts of British comedy and I was very familiar with uh, Spike Milligan because of the record of Bad Jolly the Witch. Ah, of course. Uh, which I absolutely adored and learnt by heart. Jim the Eagle flew up and up and he hid inside a cloud and the witch flew round and round. Round and round the cloud she flew waiting for Jim and the children to come out just then God came along and when he saw what the wicked witch was going to do to Tim and Rose he told the witch, go away. No, I won't! I won't! said the witch and tried to scratch God's eyes out so God pointed his finger at the witch and... had burst like a bomb and disappeared in smoke and her broomstick turned into a sky snake that flew up to the moon. I knew Peter Sellers from the Pink Panther films, um, Harry Seacombe. Uh, he was just kind of on TV, on variety shows and things. Um, we didn't get Highway or any of the sort of religious stuff over there. Ah. I don't know why. We were heathens. <laughs> it's the mainstay of tedious Sunday afternoons. So, so I knew I knew them all individually, and I, my memory is that my first kind of sort of exposure to the to the word goons in their context was when Peter Sellers died, and I was about six, and there was either it was either a newspaper headline or it was on TV that it was when when his death was announced. Uh, the headline was "Goon but not forgotten," which um, gets trotted out ad nauseum. Um, yeah, and I remember I asked my father about that because I didn't understand why. And I, I think I, in my memory, I think I thought he must've been Scottish. He must've been <laughs> Scottish. And that's why they called, they said goon instead of gone. <laughs> and I think my, my dad must've explained to me who they were, but it kind of, so I kind of became aware that, that, that they had been, that Milligan and Sellers uh, had worked together. And, and then fast forward about eight years and by pure happenstance, I heard um, the last smoking seagull broadcast on uh, the, the national radio, uh, New Zealand mm. national radio. And even though it was, you know, it was the last goon show proper from series 10 and it's extremely uh, all over the, all over the shop. And no blue bottle as well, I think. Oh yeah. I think you're I, right actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I, I remember hearing that one and being a bit disappointed. It's like, there's no blue bottle in it. Yeah, so that was that was my first, and I kind of heard and I listened to it, and I I was really, I was really, I really laughed at the coughing. <laughs> the 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 excessive coughing yes. in the show, um, and just the whole the whole sort of uh, freewheeling style of it, I guess. And I, I sometimes think if the first show I'd heard had been one of the earlier shows from, say, series five, one of the more structured narratives, would it have maybe caught my ear mm. as much? And Because don't get me wrong, I like series five, I like series six, but they're a lot more structured. Obviously, Eric Sykes had a steadying influence on the scripts. And I wonder whether I, I would have sort of stuck with it if, if I'd heard, you know, uh, The Canal instead of The Last Smoking Seagull. Um, mm. But that was that was how I sort of got into them. Yeah, it's, it did sort of, it was like nothing else hearing it. And I think I'd likened it to would be The Twilight Zone, not in any way being a similar sort of thing. But it's one of the few things of that pre, we say from just 
effectively pre-Beatles era when things were just that bit straighter and a bit more old-fashioned that um, you can still experience absolutely on its own terms without compensating for the period. Mm-hmm. You can watch The Twilight Zone, it's just a great bit of television and you're right in there and you don't have to go, this is good for, you know, for something from the 50s and early 60s, this is actually pretty good. So you, you know, you're just watching it. Wow, this is a great bit of TV. And I think it's the same for The Goon Show that, like, you're not sort of saying, yeah, for, I mean, we'll probably come to it that there's a few things you wouldn't do in comedy now and a few sort of voices you wouldn't perhaps do. But generally in terms of the actual comedy and the world it builds and that sort of thing, you can just completely immerse yourself in it and enjoy it and not have to say for a 50s radio show this is pretty good it's just this is really good yeah enjoy it on its own terms so did you start to what collect the tapes records what what did you what was your sort of uh, fanship i did yes i got the tapes out of the library i never have had quite enough money to buy them but i would get them out of the library and i would sometimes record them onto my own tapes so that i could keep um, so I built up a small collection and for somebody who was a huge fan of it and I would have to say and I can say from however many, de- however many decades almost 30 years down the line I was probably incredibly annoying because I did as a early mid-teenager used to do the voices quite a lot uh, and go around and I won't um, I won't attempt to replicate quite how annoying as I was then because I don't want to be that annoying now um, but I think I had this problem where I sort of thought that if I did the voices it would sum up for people it would evoke for people the whole wild and weird and glorious world of the goons but of course just doing the voices out of context doesn't you just sound silly and you get none of the context and none of that sort of slightly psychedelic, ramshackle, chaotic brilliance of it. It's just an annoying teenager putting on a really annoying voice for several hours a day. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I was the same. I did the voices. I, yeah. I think I managed to do, I think my best one, I'm, not, I'm sure as hell not going to do it now, but I think that my best one was Minnie Bannister. But yeah, I would do, I would do the voices. My dad, thankfully, had been a, big fan of the goons in the 50s so he was quite ah. uh, receptive um mm. but if i tried to do them to my siblings do the voices to my siblings or or i think i was canny enough at the time not to try it out on my contemporaries or my friends i think something inside me kind of stayed my hand when it came to like i'm not going to really talk about the goons to my friends because ah. it's just, mm, there's just something maybe think no that might just that i might get laughed at <laughs> i wish i'd had your self-control well, I sat in some of the lessons I sat next to this kid called Lee, and he'd heard of them as well. I, I slightly shudder saying this, but yeah, me and Lee used to sit in the back of whichever lessons. I think we were in French together and just do the voices. Oh, that must have been awful. And I, I don't know where we went, but we went to some kind of museum or art gallery, and me and Lee just walked around the entire trip. Just, ah, oh. Why we didn't get punched in the face? I just don't know. <laughs> It's awful. I I I would like to apologise thirty years down the line for en- everyone who had to be in a class with me in nineteen ninety one and nineteen ninety two. You would have thought that doing voices like that, doing silly voices like that, would be like catnip for for the opposite sex. 
Yeah, there's nothing teenage girls like more than somebody doing silly voices. Yeah, because one thing that, that will be completely forbidden on this uh, podcast will be um, any any impressions or mm-hmm. uh, anything like that. I'm not sure I have the vocal flexibility to crack up my blue bottle anymore. <laughs> I don't think I can hit quite those notes anymore, those, those pitches. Yeah, there's a certain... Because I was quite involved. I won't name names. I was quite involved... After a few years of, of getting into the goons, I, I this is obviously before social media, but I kind of got yeah. hooked up, if you like, with fellow goon enthusiasts. And I and I, there was an occasion, actually, because I went to live in, although, I, as I say, I, I grew up in New Zealand, I, I went to live in Belfast in the, in the very early 90s for, for, for wow. reasons. Okay. Mm. Um, and there was an occasion when I got to be in the same room as a handful of goon mm. fans whatever you want to call them and i was by decades the youngest person there um and i'd like to say it was enjoyable but actually it was a little bit even at the tender age of what i would have what 16 17 it was a little bit cringy because yeah they were doing the voices we're talking middle-aged men doing the voices and um quoting lines and trying to conduct conversations just by you know quoting chunks of the goon show mm. um and uh saying hello folks to everybody <laughs> yes <laughs> and and those people now but also being quite reactionary at the same time oh, oh yeah those those same people will have will probably be in their 70s today and mm. mourning the fact that poor president trump didn't get a second term <laughs> comedy these days it's all swearing it's all it's all wokeness gone mad you can't do silly puns on TV anymore without the police coming around and arresting you for not having black lesbians in it. It's all that kind of thing, isn't it? <laughs> the Goon Show is particularly... Well, at least the fans of the Goon Show are particularly guilty of that. I don't know why it is. Yeah. I don't know if Tony Hancock fans fall into that demographic, but... No, I'm not sure, actually. I, I possibly haven't interacted with them quite so much. But you'd think, like, the Goons were so anarchic and so out there in terms of restructuring things and and kicking back against authority and mocking um figures that people wouldn't dare to have mocked before and they did often get into trouble for just sort of for parodying members of the royal family or the ruling classes or the officer class and that sort of thing so you would think that the original fans or the second generation fans would have a bit more sort of feel for that kind of rebelliousness but I guess these these things calcify a bit, maybe. <laughs> Was there a point when you kind of stopped listening? Well, I got f- I got even further into it. So I um, I did actually join the local society of the GSPS, the Goon Show Preservation Society, and I must have sent off one of the newsletters, and I happened to see, or I saw that the person in charge of the local society, Kim. Uh, which was the home counties branch, which was covers quite a lot, large area of England. For anyone who doesn't know the English uh, geography, it covers quite a large area. But it, it so happened that Kim lived probably two miles from me. All right. So I was able to go to their house and go to the some of the Goon Show Preservation Society meetings. And I was quite lucky with the fact, I think, going from <laughs> your experiences, that actually everyone in the home counties group certainly that I met or who regularly turned up, were quite young. So I was 17 at the time, and I remember King, Kim was 21. Um, and there was another chap, I think he was in his 
early 30s so we were sort of the main three and then uh my friend adrian who at the time and still remains uh, is probably a year or two younger than me he came along a bit later so we were qu- quite a different crowd i think and i i i really enjoyed going to kim's house because it first a 21 year old it wasn't what you'd imagine a 21 year old's um house to be like uh, and they had a record player um who i always remember this uh, and hopefully kim may listen to this uh th- th- they had a record player whose doors were the volume control so you'd open and close the door to make it louder or quieter in the front of this record player so it was some really old vintage thing uh we, I, we we'd go around there and play you know kim would play the old Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan singles or other com- you know, vintage 50s and 60s comedy records on this really old record player. So it was, it was such an interesting experience to um, share this with people who were... It was an enthusiasm for them rather than being the people from the time, if that makes sense. It, was part of, it wasn't part of our upbringing. It was a thing we discovered and had become enthusiastic about, so we didn't necessarily have any of the cultural baggage of it being our thing that we'd grown up with and had to cling on to, if that makes sense. Uh, even, I mean, the Beatles, were, I was a huge Beatles fan at the time. Oddly, I it took me years to connect the Beatles and Goons. Uh, it took me years to put together the Beatles and the Goons connection. The fact that George Martin produced uh, the Goon shows, or the Goon members' solo records, and, and you know, obviously as the Beatles producer, and just the fact that the Beatles were huge Goon fans as well, and a lot of their humour and a lot of the things that even happened on their records were inspired by the Goon shows. Um, how old are you, Adam? I'm uh, 46, so I'm just slightly younger than you. Like say, so we're more or less the same age. So mm. you you would have got the Goon Show Preservation Society newsletter, I guess. In That's the right, yes. Uh, early 90s, yeah. Well, yes, yeah. Well, then I guarantee you will have seen some of my artwork. Probably, yeah. I've probably still got them somewhere. I'll have to dig them out. I haven't. I haven't, and I, and I kick myself. I I joined the, the GSPS... Um, when I arrived in Belfast, so that was early 91. And mm. um, I used to, because I'm quite good at cartooning, I used to send, there was one show I did some drawings for, which was the Mystery of the Marie Celeste, which oh, okay, yeah. they were covering. I think I think that was it anyway, uh, or the Booted Gorilla. Anyway, I did did some pictures for the, for the newsletter. And what was important to me uh, was that, I think it was for something like five pounds, a five pound note. You'd post a, I'd post a five pound note to this address somewhere in, in England. Mm-hmm. And I would get, I would receive a few days later, a cassette tape with two shows on because they'd have like a, a list of all the shows that you could borrow basically. And uh-huh. so what I, what I would do is I would then obviously make a recording of the, so I'd basically be sending off, for copies of shows that I didn't have and copying those and then basically building up my uh, collection. And that was where all my, the sort of pocket money I had, that's that's where it all went. (laughs) I'd go and buy videos, you know, pre-recorded VHS tapes from the large Virgin Megastore of things like the Pink Panther film, um, some of Peter Sellers' earlier films, some good, some bad. Um, So yeah, all my money went on, on, on those. Also buying the, the commercial BBC Goons releases. 
Um, but yeah, I was I was quite active with the GSPS for for a time. Yeah, it was it was. I think it was quite fun. I did actually. I was briefly, after Kim decided not to do it anymore, I was briefly in charge of the home counties branch. Although being about seventeen at the time, I didn't really know what to do with that. And I held held a couple of meetings at my house, and it wasn't really very much fun because I'm not that sort of person who can really hold certainly not in the day really hold meetings with adults and make it a fun thing I can't actually remember what we used to do at the meetings even like I was I was earlier just before recording when I was thinking about it I think what yeah I, I know we went to these meetings at Kim's house but what did we actually did we read the scripts did we what yeah did we just talk about the goons did we yeah, I can't remember beyond just running through the scripts and doing the voices what we actually might have talked about. Um, maybe it was just this. <laughs> it was this 30 years ago. I I bought back copies of as many old issues of the GSPS newsletter as I, as I could get because hmm. they were more or less pretty good in terms of broadening your knowledge of the goons, the goon show itself and, and of the performers. Um, cause there'd be articles, there'd be reprints of old, you know, uh, interviews and things like that, because obviously pre-internet, the only real sort of resource or commercially available resource was like the, the Roger Wilmot goon show companion. Of course. Um, yeah. There was, there was a few, there was like the goon show scripts. There was, there was a ton of Peter Sellers biographies. And, and the like but apart from that there wasn't a lot so i don't know if i guess if if i had been sitting in that little assemblage of of like-minded people with you mm. i would probably have been talking about um just goon stuff and just trying to sort of share knowledge it, everything kind of culminated in the fact the, the fact that i had this idea that we should perform a couple of goon shows for comic relief back when comic relief was you know, still quite a big thing and it wasn't just another name for children in need it was an actual a thing that you'd stay up and watch because it was really good comedy and they might show some old monty python episodes or young ones episodes late at night kind of thing so my idea um and also it's a great charity you know, we we did it for that reason as well but my idea was that we we could um in my school hall get the public in to pay some money and we'd perform uh, a couple of scripts because we were quite good at it and um Kim and I particularly, even if I say so myself, were quite good at doing the voices and we had quite good comic timing. So we did we could do a fairly good job of these scripts. So we did one original or we did one actual goon show one and we did one that Kim had written. So it was it was a it was a brand new goon script. And uh, I remember it being quite good. I've probably still got a copy of it somewhere. It was called The Raving and it was um, an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. So it was kind of stuck in the goon tradition of being an adaptation of something either literary or from film or that kind of thing. And I seem to remember it's quite good. The only gag I remember from it is, you're back. Yes, I brought it with me. <laughs> Top tier goon uh, gag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think so. Uh, and I forget now which actual goon show script we did, which is terrible of me. I remember writing a goon show script. You've just reminded me. I'd completely forgotten about mm. this. And I would, oh. have been, I would have been about 15, I guess. And... My only memory of it was that Grit Pipe Thin and Moriarty go into a basement. And when they, when they emerge from the basement, there's been like a, what we have to assume has been a, a complete nuclear holocaust. <laughs> That's dark. And, and, I'm, and I'm wondering now, thinking about it, whether I'd seen the bed sitting room 
by that oh, point and maybe that influenced me maybe because they're sort of wandering through this desolate wasteland and and meeting the various characters on the way and that's all i can remember about it i can't remember mm. any gags <laughs> in fact it was it was probably unremittingly dull and harrowing <laughs> there were probably no jokes at all <laughs> it makes me now think what makes me now wonder whether i actually attempted to write one it seems like i have don't have a specific memory of it but it seems like the kind of thing i would do it's like oh i could do that and put some silly gags in um yeah it, I, I must have at least attempted it or thought about it but yeah, it's, it went quite well. It was quite entertaining. We had a guy with a computer who had the sound effects and he could just press a button and it went wrong, uh, of course. Uh, but the trouble was it it was just difficult to advertise. So about 12 people turned up and we made about £100, 30 of which was provided by one of the people from the Goon Show. <laughs> it was so much fun. Yeah, I did. I really loved it. it despite the fact I twisted my ankle, I sprained my ankle during the interval. I think I was just a bit wobbly from nerves, so I went funny down a step. So I was fine for the rest of the show, but one of my abiding memories is I was then off school for the next week with my leg up because it, it, I could just couldn't walk. And I think the fact that I didn't feel it straight away and I did the whole second half on this sprained ankle and I was so full of adrenaline that I, I wasn't, didn't feel anything. And then I was going to the car and I was like, hang on, I can't walk. But it might be a good thing because a few of my school friends did turn up to watch it, so I didn't have to talk to them about it for for a week. <laughs> so it may, it was maybe a blessing in disguise. So um, were, you, were you Sellers or Milligan? I was Sellers. So this other guy, Colin, he was he he was that sort of hello folks sort of personality. I did the voice. I'm sorry. <laughs> maybe doing the doing the Harry Seacombe voice is all right. But uh, yeah, he was, right, hang on, hang on. Verbal warning. Okay. <laughs> Yellow card. <laughs> but he was that sort of personality anyway so he fit he didn't quite have the comic timing of harry seacomb but he fit that role quite well and i think and because i could do a good blue bottle i think i generally did the uh sellers ones and kim did the uh milligan ones seacomb was really the 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 heart of the show mm. Um, so it's very important character, but Sellers, I guess, had the the most heavy lifting to do in terms of the the, the various voices, because Milligan Milligan's voices, I don't think, were as complex. No, they're all quite Spike Milligan, weren't they? They're all like different tam different timbres of Spike Milligan, whereas yeah, Peter Sellers' ones were definitely different characters, and they mostly sounded very different from each other. We discussed obviously ahead of this show. I asked you what episode of the Goons you'd like to uh, to look at, and you chose the series eight version of the Man Who Never Was. Yes, um, from uh, February seventeenth, it was nineteen fifty eight, and obviously itself being a, a remake of series six show, which itself mm -hmm. was uh, expanded upon from series three show. So they had a lot of, lot of opportunity to get this one right. Yeah, and, and I think it's fair to say that the, I mean, the Series 3 show doesn't exist anymore, so we, we can't really comment. But uh -huh. I, I put my neck out and say, suggest that it's probably not quite as effective as the Series 8 version, which, yeah, you said it, it's it's one of your favourite uh, Goon yeah. shows. Absolutely for me as well. I'd say it'd be top five uh, for sure. So what what was it, what is it about that particular episode that that appeals to you? Largely because it was the first one I heard. So the, the tape that I got 
uh, it was rewound to this one. So this was the first one I heard. And so this this was the one that snared me into it. And I was just rolling around laughing at this 30-year-old comedy show. Yeah, 1991, by the way, was a great uh, year to be a Goons fan because of the 40th anniversary uh, course, yes. celebrations and those restored Goon shows that they put on Radio 2, I think. And it must have been about the time that they did the Starling, or they put the Starlings out as well, which is sort of like the Goon Show without a laugh track. It was described as a play, but it was essentially just a Goon Show without a laugh track, really, wasn't it? And without the musical interludes. Yeah, and it was it's okay. It, it's sort of a bit eerie. It's like it's sort of they've haunted the studio after hours or something. It's, it's just something a bit odd about it. It's a bit off that it's like, is this supposed to be funny? How? F- yeah, it doesn't quite have those hit points. And I think I think it's as well as not having the laughter from the audience, it doesn't quite have the energy generated by having the audience there as well. It's sort of it's got a different vibe. <laughs> February the 32nd, all troops withdrawn. Operation Cacophony abandoned. A military disaster. Those responsible clad in sackcloth once more walked the streets. It strikes. It, it sounds like it should belong on the third program, and not mm. not the the light program or the home service. You've probably you've maybe actually heard more than I have, even though I was quite deep in the Goon Show Preservation Society. I probably at the time would have only have heard maybe a dozen, because I only got the ones from the library and maybe one or two that I bought. So I never sent off for any. So I I mainly picked my enormous obsession and fascination with the goon show from a very small handful of episodes and this is still and i used to love looking at the lists of episodes and because the titles are quite dry which i like so it doesn't give much away so things like the red fort or uh like say the canal or those sorts of things they're not zany titles for the most part there's some of them you know, like the the batter pudding hurler of bexel on sea and that kind of thing which has quite zany titles but i was sort of fascinated by the ones that had the drier titles it's like what what kind of goon show is hiding behind that quite dry title so i it, a lot of them just existed as potential goon shows in my imagination i think potentially from being quite tight with money as well that i didn't shell out very often for that sort of thing i just sort of like oh there's another one in the library i can get that and t- copy it onto tape or occasionally for a birthday i'll ask for a, a twin tape set you know the ones that had the four episodes on yeah well no well i i had i'm one of these people that you know i just need to have everything if I get into something, I need to have everything. So yes. I, by the end, I I had every existing show. I had a copy of every existing show, either um, you know from one of the commercial releases, you know BBC releases, or or one of the one of the um, EMI releases that had the the musical bits clipped out. I had copies that I'd got from the Goon Show Preservation Society. I had shows that I'd taped off the radio, and I'd managed to get every existing show. Wow, um, that's pretty good going. 
yeah, so I think that's probably something like 130 odd shows. Right. And I knew most of them because I listened to them obsessively. I knew most of them off by heart, or at least I did. But yeah, I've I sort of stopped this sort of white heat of of passion for them um, from about 88 up to about maybe 92, 93. Hmm. Um, and then I discovered booze, I discovered girls and discovered <laughs> uh, other distractions. And yeah, and I kind of, I think I kind of, maybe they grew out of me. I grew out of them. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I know what you mean, actually. I think I'm, I'm similar that um, I had a slightly shorter run. So I probably went from 91 to 93. So I, I, I burnt slightly hotter <laughs> for a short amount. Of time. Or probably actually not as hot. I think you burnt hotter with collecting them all. But I, yeah, I, I had the shorter run. And I was not so cool as discovering booze and girls. I discovered cinema, I think, was what did it for me. And I think it's a similar thing that, that yeah, that there's only, if you're being annoying and doing the voices all day long at 15, that's one thing. But if you're doing it at 17, 18, then that's a problem. Uh, yeah. It, well, I had, a, I actually, when I was living in Belfast, so I was 16, 17, and I got my first proper girlfriend. And I don't think I ever meant, even though I was at the time still mad keen on them, I don't think I ever had a conversation or tried to introduce them to her or tried to play one for her. Again, wow. I just, I kind of, it was kind of, I compartmentalized my life in that mm. way. Um, I think I may have shown a friend for, at school when I got one of my cartoons printed in the newsletter. I think I took it to school and showed him and he kind of, he for some reason he was obsessed by Genesis. <laughs> and not and not early not early kind of um, avant-garde Genesis. It was more sort of Phil Collins era. Okay, Genesis, and he that was all he thought about, and that was all he talked about. So he looked at this picture in this, this little drawing of Blue Bottle in the the newsletter, and then just sort of started talking about I can't dance or something or whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, as I said, I, I didn't really. I kind of kept it to myself. And I don't know whether it was out of embarrassment or just, I don't, because there's nothing to be embarrassed about. But I think even then I sort of knew that, well, at the time, Vic and Bob, uh, Vic Reeves' Big Night Out was massive. Yeah. I could have very reasonably said to my friends, well, hey, you like Monty Python? Well, look, you know, have a listen to this. This is, you know, this is the, this is where it all sort of sp- sprang from the loins of these guys. But even then, no, I kind of kept it to myself. And um, and then yeah. it's, it's, it's probably been 25 years since I've listened to most of the shows, really. I think same here, yeah. It must be about 20, 25 years. You actually reminded me that sort of like the embarrassment factor. I think the only time I was ever seriously embarrassed at school as a Goon Show fan is that someone, one of the girls came up to me and said, you're really into the Goonies, aren't you? And I was like, no. <laughs> no, it's a different thing. That's a children's film. Like, oh, no, they think I'm really into the Goonies. This has all gone horribly wrong. <laughs> Did you flee to a monastery? I, I joined the Foreign Legion. <laughs> of course, now the Goonies are considered quite cool. Yeah. Um, so the, the man, the man who never was. So I listened to it again this morning. Okay. And what was what was your? Did it hold up? It really did. Yeah, I, I think, um, like we were saying, I probably haven't listened to this actual episode in twenty five years, and two things stood out for me. One was that. A large percentage of it, even if I didn't know exactly what was going to happen next, my brain could sort of 
anticipate the intonation of what was going to happen next or the sound of it if that if that's something that makes sense so maybe not the exact words uh but it did it feels slightly seared into my memory as like a tattoo that i must have listened to it dozens and dozens of times it's so familiar but the bits that i didn't remember quite so well i laughed out loud at it wasn't it it wasn't just sort of going back and nodding along going oh yeah i remember this this is good i did genuinely laugh out loud at a lot of it so it stood up really well yeah I think. It, the, the thing is it it's um you know as i said it was a, it was a remake of a remake and it has it's it's it has remnants of series three show structure to it mm-hmm. um and if you look at the shows from from series eight that surround it in terms of um the shows that came before the shows that came after um and and then going on into the show's in series nine they were very funny a lot of the time but oftentimes they would just descend into chaos and sometimes sort of six form humor (laughs) ruffles um and just and just cast having more fun than the audience in some cases Mm. whereas this was there was a, a coherent story there was a linear story it was based on an actual event um so they had something that they could you know work from and yeah, I think it's the it's probably the most from series eight, probably the most consistently funny episode. And this is possibly a bit of a downside of this being the first one that I came to that I just assume this is a sample, a random goon show sample, and they're all going to be as good as this. So it's like, wow, what have I unlocked? But but actually, often I've enjoyed all of them. There haven't been any that I've hated, but I've never laughed quite as consistently as many at Maybe some of the others, but a lot of the others don't quite have the gag rate. Yeah, I mean, they they, they remade, uh, there was another show they remade in series nine, I think, called Dishonored, um, yeah. which was a remake of a series five show because I think uh, Milligan had, didn't have time to write a new script. So we basically just took an old script, updated it a little bit, put in some new characters or some of the newer characters and, and some newer gags and stuff. Um, but because it was kind of built on the foundation of a, a very solid plot well by goons terms <laughs> yes it's all relative isn't it yeah it, it's extremely effective and and this is the same so you know mm. because because we don't have the series three uh, episode to, to to listen to there's a few little bits in here where you know that that's just being taken straight from series three and they've not really altered it for example there's the bit when Seagoon's in the yacht club. Does he, he he races up onto the ceiling or something? And yes, tossing members aside as he goes. That's it. And he encounters um, Blue Bottle, who basically calls. He describes himself as a Blue Bottle, which I'm guessing was how he introduced himself in that series three episode. Because up to that point, the character, the voice for Blue Bottle, the voice was sort of referred to in the script as Ernie Splutmuscle. Okay. Um, and I think it's from the, the, the series three episode of The Man Who Never Was that that he he henceforth became known as Blue Bottle because you know, in that show he was a blue bottle. Yes, he's on the ceiling reading a fly paper. He is an actual fly. No, don't throw me down. I'm always up here. Hey. Hello, everybody. Are you a member? No, I'm a blue bottle. What's that you're reading? A flypaper. 
Now, I found this really confusing, again, as this being the, f the first one that I came to. To me, Blue Bottle was a Blue Bottle. So then when he's a schoolboy in other ones, it's like, this is confusing me. <laughs> why? Why? And when you see the little cartoons of him, he's wearing a schoolboy cap and he's a human boy. And I quite like the surrealism, surrealism of him being a talking blue bottle who sits on the ceiling. But yes, that makes sense now that it was an older iteration of that character or just a, a, a slightly more random thing going on. Yeah, and there's there's also, I mean, obviously they when they remade it for series six, they I, I guess they took the, the script um, and expanded it and added bits that were relevant and, and to sort of topical for the series six series, if you know what I mean. So for example, yeah. uh, in the series six remake, Blood Knock talks about um, marching uh, a scoundrel backwards for Christmas with a gas stove over his head, Yes, um, which, which survives into the series eight remake. But at the time uh, the, 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 the series six version went out, it was surrounded by, or, or went out around the time that the episodes, the Tuscan Salami scandal, went out, which is where I'm Walking Backwards for Christmas was debuted. Oh, um, yeah. And there was a show either before it or after it called Scratch, which involved people carrying gas stoves over their head. Right, I see. So, yeah, so they, so Milligan obviously plucked those two themes, put it into the series show, a series six show, and then it just survived into the series eight, series eight remake. I'll have to try and track down the series six one because I've never heard it. And I'm so familiar with, like I say, the intonations and the points at which they start to crack up and all those things that it will be quite, it'll be, yeah, it'll be a bit weird to hear the same script done differently or a very similar script. It's it's slightly more, sub the Series 6 episode is slightly more subdued and it's not as funny. Right. It has an extended uh, section with Moriarty just kind of talking in cod French <laughs> yeah. for about two minutes and the ending is weaker because the, 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 the series eight show it's from you know beginning middle and end it's it's all very strong and the ending is a great ending because so many goon shows would just end with a, a oh dare say it's machina yeah there'd be all or there'd be just some pretty crappy sort of well that's it then See you next yeah. week, kind of ending. Yeah, they so many of them just uh, end suddenly, don't they? It's just like, well, that's that's thirty minutes. Bye. Wrong again, my Dan. I yeah, I, I sort of made a, a few notes of some specific things that came to me as I as I was listening to it, and um, I noted down when Harry Seacum says, "Have you done?" Uh, that really reminded me of John Lennon. Have you done? Kind of thing, and I think it makes. I think there's that generation of the people who listen to the goons on a Sunday morning in bed or that kind of thing that just picked up those sorts of inflections and those sorts of ways of saying things, even sort of subconsciously that I think and probably the Beatles are one of the, the most listened to members of that generation of people who you know, who are creatively influenced by the goons. But there's so much, particularly in the way that John Lennon would speak and the, the sort of way that he phrased things. And of course, his his own writing is very Spike Milligan, and his little cartoons are very Spike Milligan as well. And that may also be a subject for an for an episode as well, just how, you know, the the, the correlation between John Lennon and Spike Milligan's imagination. And um... yeah, there's a line in um, one of the Christmas records. You know, the flexi discs that the Beatles put out for the fan mm. club. This long forgotten place where no human eye has ever set foot. Oh, that's Magical Mystery Tour. Is it? 
Yes, it's where the wizards live. The magicians, the four magicians, four or five magicians live in this, yeah, where the, the eyes of man have never yet set foot. Yeah, and that's, God, I feel dumb now. Yeah, for some reason I had it made. But um, there's a goon show called The Lost Emperor. Yes. <laughs> to this day, the tomb of Genghis Khan with its untold treasures remains undiscovered. He lies buried in some Mongol hillside where no human eye has ever set foot. Beyond the blue horizon, far above the clouds, in a land that no one knows, live four or five magicians who spend their days casting wonderful spells. Come with me now into that secret place where the eyes of man have never set foot. And if you listen to uh, the obvious, I suppose the most goon-inflected, goon-influenced Beatles song is You Know My Name, Look Up the Number, where at one point Lennon is doing either kind of a blue bottle or kind of an early Henry Crun kind Mm. of voice. Uh, the, 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 The sort of slightly French guy at the end as well. Sounds yes. a bit like Moriarty. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's quite fascinating how much they just absorb that sort of thing and would just talk like it at the drop of a hat. Going back to the the, the man who never was, there's a <clears> sequence <throat> where uh, Henry and Minnie are talking, and it's it's kind of an extended sequence where it must have been just so easy for Milligan to write the Henry and Minnie bits because yeah. most of it is just them kind of muttering <laughs> at each other. Oh, that's the whole, the bit with morning, isn't it? Where they're just saying morning to each other a lot. And then, and then at one point, which I absolutely love, Crun or Salah's sort of muttering into his beard. It sounds like he's yeah. kind of, and then Milligan goes line 14. So it's clear that Salah's <laughs> is obviously completely lost <laughs> his place in the script. That's one of the things, that's one of the things I do love about the goon shows that it, it it keeps all that stuff in. So throughout this script in particular, they're just breaking up. I mean, sometimes they're trying not to laugh, but other occasions they're just laughing and they don't care. And it's all kept in. So you think of sort of 1950s radio as being quite formal and formalised, and it probably was, but this is just clearly the audience having fun, the actors having fun, and it's all the, most of the fun is kept in. And you, know, you get the sort of... the, the that Milligan mutter, a lot of Milligan muttering in the background as well. It's, that's one of his stock things, I think, is just that kind of discontent, his faux discontented muttering that he'd do in the background while other people are talking. And But just all those little sort of texture things that are all kept in, so it just makes it sound like this great, chaotic, fun time. Well, I never, I never got to the bottom of whether they actually did go into the wings and drink brandy. Because um, <laughs> no. there was a running joke that every time Galdray or, or Allington were due to do their number, um, the running gag was that they would the, the, the goons would go in, into the wings and drink brandy, basically. Um, right. And I'm not sure if they didn't, if you know what I mean, because yes. you, there's some shows that you could hear them beginning to slightly deteriorate as the show, you know, as the shows go, go on. I think more or less, yeah, I think they, they were semi-drunk a lot of the time, um, certainly as the, you know, towards the end of the run. Um, and it, this particular show, 
was uh, produced by Charles Chilton. Now, do you know anything about Charles Chilton? Not hugely, actually. I think I only know the name f- from him, from the credits, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I my knowledge, my memory uh, with regards to him is that he, he was kind of asked to step in and, and produce a bulk of Series 8 Goon shows as a kind of favour. Um, so he wasn't particularly bothered either way. I think he just, it was just a job of work for him. Um, I think he was, he was close to retirement. So a lot of the shows that he produced were very scrappy or quite scrappy. Um, but this one obviously, uh, is not, um, but he's probably best known for, he produced journey. Is it journey into space? Journey into space. The BBC presents Jet Morgan in The World in Peril. That, I think that was kind of his his uh, claim to fame, really. Oh, okay. But I think he kind of just, yeah, just let them get on with it. Which is, it's a, yeah, whether it was more or less entertaining at the time, it's great. It's it's a great time capsule just to have it, you know, for it not to be a tight, really clean, polished radio show, but actually hearing the workings and being able to audibly see the cogs turning all that kind of stuff and all the pulleys and strings and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, cause they, cause they're, they're, they're producer for, I suppose you would call it the, the mid period of the show's life. In other words, sort of series four, series five. And I think series six was a guy called Peter Eaton. Oh yeah. Who, uh-huh. who was um, by all accounts, quite a hard taskmaster, quite um, formidable kind of character. Mm. And he kind of enforced a certain degree of um, order upon the show. Right. And so that's why I think those shows from that period are, are, are much more structured. Um, but he also encouraged or, or, or kind of tacitly encouraged sort of lavatorial humor because he, he liked that sort of thing. So I think, I think a lot of sort of um, more questionable for the time anyway, more questionable sort of material started to creep in during that, right, during that period. Um, and then when he left, sort of late series six, early series seven, uh, it was Pat Dixon came in to produce. And again, he was he was a good producer, but he he kind of let them have their way. And I guess it would probably, it would be their thing at that stage. So it would be difficult to come in as a new producer and really impose onto them and control them in the same way, I suppose. Yeah, and I, I think Milligan, because of Peter Eaton, kind of got into a... Uh, a routine so he he kind of he was he knew how to structure a show he knew how to write it knew how to perform how it should be and then after Eaton left I suppose gradually ever so gradually things starting to loosen up loosen off mm-hmm. and and then by the time you get to series nine and then series ten you know yeah they're all over the place um, still funny mm. and there's some great there's a there's a, a Quasimass and the Pit parody 
I think that's one of the ones I've heard. Yeah, that rings a bell. Yeah, there's there's a Charles Dick, there's Christmas Carol parody. Uh, I think when they parody things, like I guess this this film, Many Never Was, when they're parodying something that already exists, they've got a lot more structure to the shows. Saying that they did a, a parody of um, Bridge on the River Kwai called uh, Africa Incident or something. Okay. So separate from the record that separate to the record yeah i can't remember what, which one it was now but it was series eight but they did a, a river Kwai parody and that was that was um right okay <laughs> did you pick up did you pick up the reference to a certain colonel benteen i did yes yes it's one of the few times i'd noticed or i remember him being referenced post him actually being in the show I'm guessing that that has survived from the series three. I'm yeah, guessing because he, he left end of series two. So he'd have been like six or seven years gone by that stage, wouldn't he? Yes. So he, so I've only heard there's, there's, there's two or three existing shows from when he was in it, hmm. um, which are really bad quality, really poor quality, um, almost unlistenable. But, you know, when yeah. I was, when I was younger, I sort of persevered. Uh-huh. Ah, yes. Climb down to the base camp at the bottom of the mountain and see if they've got any supplies. Right up. Now, uh, have any uh, supplies down there? Oh, I love the lunch. Thank you. Well, did they have any supplies? Yes. Oh, uh, see if they've got any milk, will you? Right up. was okay nothing special um not trying to i mean very successful guy michael benteen of course but he he came back to do one guest spot in series four. Oh, really okay i'm not i'm not sure why i don't know mm. why but he did and then after that you know um you know he was he was never mentioned apart from in in this episode right so this is this is the only reference to michael benteen yeah i think he might have been mentioned in the series six version of the man who never was as well can't quite remember but yeah this is the only mention this is the only sort of reference to him that he'd ever existed So I think we'll leave it there for part one of this uh, discussion with Adam about The Man Who Never Was. Join us again for the second part next time. In the meantime, please check out my Twitter account. That's at GoonshowPod. And I hope you've enjoyed this first half. Bye.